Happy Sabbath. Wow, that first grade. They're way beyond Jesus wept, aren't they? And everyone else. Uh, I'm just so blessed by how the children have led this morning, aren't you? How they have led us in worship. And it's so good to be in the house of God this morning. Before we open up his word, can we bow our heads for a word of prayer? Loving Father, we want to thank you and praise you for the gift of young people. We want to thank you, Lord, that you have given us the opportunity to help them in their journey towards you. We want to pray, Lord, that as we open up your word, that your Holy Spirit will be here to teach us, to guide us, to open up our hearts and minds to be receptive to your teachings. We want to pray, Lord, that if anyone here is struggling this morning, that you will comfort them, encourage them, strengthen them, give them a sense of your peace and abiding love this morning. We pray, Lord, that you will help us to understand how we can be better stewards of our time and talents and gifts, particularly in helping the young people come closer to you, to reach their destiny, to understand their duty, and to be led into the promised land as you have promised. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, I would like to go on a journey with you. And before we go on that journey, I would like to share a a personal journey that I had about three years ago. And I'm going to share um, something about my family dynamics a little bit so you can understand how that journey took place and uh, explain how we as a family went on that journey. There's a a little bit of a a difference in personality between my wife and I. Um, How many of you like to go on trips? Yeah, yeah, I love trips. And I could go on trips all the time. And so when three years ago I said to my wife, Hun, how would you like to go to Saipan? Well, she was not quite as excited as I was. Because for Susan, and this is one thing that makes her a great, amazing mother, is she'd just as soon stay home. (laughs) She was happy to be in Savoy and happy to be at Berkshire Hills and happy to work with the dentist, Dr. Basigal, and just pleased to stay right where she was. So when I said, let's go to Saipan, um, she was not immediately excited about that year. But through a series of circumstances, God led us on that journey. And when we decided that we were going there, we had quite a time because just everything was happening uh, at once. Uh, My daughter was married in Virginia at the end of July just as soon as that was done, we motored on back here to Andrews University where she graduated from Andrews University with her degree in speech pathology and audiology. Just as soon as that was done, uh, Susan and I went out to the North American Division Teachers Convention in Chicago. Just as soon as that was done, I got on a plane to Los Angeles. And after I got on a plane to Los Angeles, I flew to Honolulu, Hawaii for the student missionary orientation. And I stayed there a few days, and because I was a new principal, they wanted me to get right to Saipan. So I flew to, flew to Guam, and then I flew to Saipan. And that was just the beginning of my trips. <laughs> because while I was in Saipan, 
I flew to Chuuk, I flew to Guam again, I flew to uh, Hong Kong and Taiwan and Korea. So God just blessed me abundantly with these trips. And so what I would like to share with you about that is before I went on these trips, I did something that probably most of you have done. Raise your hand if you've opened up your computer or your phone and looked up on Google Maps how to get somewhere. Most of us have, right? Or, you know, some kind of app, some kind of navigation app. We go in there, we punch in destination, wherever that is. And for our purposes today, we're going to say we're going to your favorite Pacific Island. You can choose one. It's up to you. I was going to Hawaii first and then Saipan. But when you do that, you put in your destination and you put in where you're, where you're from and they'll give you how far it is. In that case, it was 7,650 miles from where I was originally to Saipan. And the, the other thing you can do is you can press the mode of travel. Everyone familiar with that? You know, you can say you're going by airplane, you're going by car, and you're going, or whatever mode of travel that you want to go wherever you're going to. So when you press that mode of travel, it's going to give you something. It will tell you if you can get from where you're at to where you're going using that mode of travel. Now, it might be perfectly fine. Let's pretend that you're independently wealthy with no restrictions, and you can walk to Saipan because you have the time and the money. Resources are no option. So you can just go ahead, choose to walk. So there's nothing wrong with that, except it would take a long time, except when you punch that into the computer and say, I'm choosing walking to go to Saipan, what's it going to say? You can't get there from here using that mode of travel. Well, why? Because the Pacific Ocean is a large ocean, and it would be very hard for you to cross it walking, and it would be even harder underneath. So you can't get there that way. And I want to suggest to you today that education in some aspects is much like that. The mode of transportation that you are using to get from point A to point D, B from your local locality to the destination will really depend on that mode of travel of where you want to go. So let's uh, turn now to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And before we, we actually open up God's Word and start reading, I want to share with you uh, an example of this. And again, I have nothing against private school. We are, after all, a private Christian school. But I was at a school, and there was a girl there who graduated. Her dad was a businessman who was quite well off, and so he could afford to send her to private school. And this particular private school for secondary education cost $29,000 a year. And so that school, I have no doubt, was an excellent means of transportation to her goal because I believe last I knew this person was war working in her father's company. So it, it did what it was supposed to do. I'd question whether that particular mode of transportation, that school, was going to be effective for the goal that we're looking for and the goal that God was trying to share with his people here in, in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And we'll continue to talk about this when we look at some of these different texts. So if you'll turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6, look in verse 1. 
Now this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess. So let's talk about that land for a second. Was it a good land? Was it a good land? It was a good land. What is, was it a land that you would want to go to? Amen, right? It, it was the promised land. The condition that they were coming out of in Egypt, was it uh, a bad situation that they were in? They were in bondage. They were in slavery. So the situation that God was promising them was light years beyond what they had come from. That you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you, you and your son and your grandson, all the days of your life, and that your days may be shortened. Therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be terrible with you, and that you may decrease and shrink as the Lord your fathers has promised a land yucky and awful. Did I get it right? <laughs> Is my new Bugby translation correct? No. But how come so many Christians today read it just like that? How often do we think that if we obey God's commandments, if we follow his statutes, if we do what God wants us to do in our lives, that our lives will be terrible, that they'll be re somehow reduced rather than increased? It goes on. Therefore, hear, O Israel, be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as your God, your fathers, has promised, a land flowing with milk and honey. So God is not telling them that by following his commandments that they will be decreased, but they will be increased. When Jesus came, he said, I come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. He doesn't want to give us a life that is somehow restricted or confined. He wants to give us a life that is abundant. Continue on in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord your God is one. So after all these promises, he does give them some commandments that he wants them to follow. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, with all your soul, and all your strength. So think about this in the context of the promised land. This land that Israel had been promised and after coming out of the bondage, they, they were in Israel. They, they were coming out from Pharaoh's oppression. They were coming out from being delivered from Pharaoh and his army, ready to devour them with their backs to the Red Sea and God opening up the Red Sea. They were coming out of a land where they were in slavery and in bondage to Pharaoh, to a land where even though they had a difficult journey, God was providing for their every need. God had provided for them in the wilderness. Did they lack anything for, for bread? God provided them for manna. Did they lack anything for, for water? God provided them from the rock, the water that they needed. And so it's in this context, in this context of God providing for them 
everything they needed and then giving them this land of milk and honey that he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your strength. Does it sound to you like that will be a difficult God to love? Does it sound like this God would be someone that you would have a challenge to love? I don't think so. I think this is a God when he said, love me with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength, that you would want to love. And he said, these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. Now here's an interesting thing as we look at this passage. When you go down to verse 7, he says, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. So it's almost like God is saying, if you love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, you will also, what? Teach your children. In other words, I think he's saying, you can't really love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength if you don't teach your children. And there's a particular way that he calls us to teach our children. You shall teach them diligently to your children. That word diligently. Um, is he calling us here to teach our children haphazardly? Randomly? Sloppily? No, right? Did you, do you think from watching the children today and what they did that the teachers just randomly or haphazardly taught them in what they were doing. I don't think so. It was pretty obvious that they were diligently rehearsed, diligently trained, diligently taught in how to do all the things that they were, they were doing. And God tells the, the people of Israel to do the same. And then he goes on. He says, talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. So how much of the day is that? Is it just an add-on? Is it just something you do um, like at the end of a prayer when you say, in Jesus' name, amen? Or is it something that goes on from the moment you wake up until till the time your head touches the pillow? Is it something that is part and parcel of who you are? Because he says here that you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. That is the entire experience of a person throughout their day. And so teaching our children, impressing upon him, them the commandments of God and the love of God is something that should be part of who we are and what we do. The other thing I want you to see in verse 8, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, you shall write them as frontlets between your eyes. Well, what's that about? What is, God, what is God telling them there? What's between your eyes? Besides my glasses. Your brain, right? I'm, God's, I'm so glad that God said there, he said, as signs, as frontlets between your eyes. It's not like, how many of you have seen the people that have been at the West the West? Uh, wall there in, Egypt, in uh, Israel where they're going like this and they have the prayer boxes on their head. So it's not that kind of thing. It's not saying that you have to have prayers on your head. It's saying that you have to 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And that comes from where? That comes from our brain, right? I'm glad, so glad he didn't, he didn't say, you know, love the Lord your God from your medulla oblongata. Because what is that? That's your brainstem. That's where you're not, that doesn't require thinking. But when he says, with the frontlets between your eyes, that's the thinking part of our brain. That's where we worship. That's where our higher level of thinking comes from. And we want to encourage higher level thinking, don't we, as Christians? We don't want people just to be mere reflectors of other people's thoughts. We want them to think. But also look in verse 8. What else does he say? He says, bind them as a sign on your hand. And what is your hand? It's what you do things with, right? So God is calling for a very balanced education. He's calling for an education that includes not only thinking, which is very important, because whatever you think, what will happen? That's what you will do. The Bible says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. So our thoughts are very important. In fact, we're told that our thoughts and feelings are what make up our character. But those thoughts and feelings eventually find their way out into our hands, our actions. So part of that teaching must include a practical hand component. Amen? If we are to train our children in the way that they should go, there must be some hands-on learning because it's not just about thinking. Finally, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Well, what's that all about? How many of you have a sign at your house that at least has a number or has your name, right? And why do you do that? You know why you do it. You, want it. you do it so the Amazon guy can go deliver the Amazon stuff to your house or whoever you want to come to your house, correct? You need to have a sign there that identifies you and your family at that location. So you remember Joshua, right? What did Joshua say? He says, as for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. So it's not like you have a sign out there that says WWJD or I'm a Christian, but it does mean that people know, oh yeah, those people, they're Christians. They're the ones that follow Jesus. The way they live, the way they talk, the way they act, they are Christians. In fact, that's how we got the name Christians, right? Originally, they were called the way. But what was happening? Well, they were always saying, it's about Jesus. We need to introduce you to Jesus, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. And people started to say, well, they're Christians. It's the same idea here. God is saying that when we are Christians living the Christian life, teaching our children to live the Christian life and love God, that that'll be writing it on the doorposts of our house and on our gates. So here we have a picture of Israel being blessed by God, and the one commandment that he gives them is to love him with all their heart, their soul, and their strength. And then he tells them that in order to do that, they have to do what? They have to diligently teach their children. I want to share with you another 
story here in God's Word if you'll turn to 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6. And this is the story of the first boarding academy. You didn't think there was a story in the Bible about the first boarding academy, did you? Because it's kind of funny, uh, interesting to me anyways, that in the Bible, even though there's plenty to say about Christian education and how God wants us to teach children, it doesn't have the word school or educate or education very often. But here's a story about how a school was established. And the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See now, the place where we dwell with you is too small for us. Isn't that interesting? I don't know if it was only just too physically small. It sounds like that was the case. But it might have been also that that particular place for the school of prophets was not appropriate for the mission that they were trying to accomplish. So it was too small for them. So they had to go someplace else and build a different place. And then he said here, please let us go to the Jordan and let every man take a beam with him. There it is, boarding school. They brought their own boards. And let us make there a place where we may dwell, said he. He answered, go. Then one said, please consent with your servants. And he said, I will go. So he went with them, and when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. And as one was cutting the tree, the iron axe fell into the water, and he cried out and said, Alas, master, for it was borrowed. So the man of God said, Where did it fall? And he showed him the place. So he cut off a stick and threw it in there, and he made it the iron float. Therefore he said, Pick it up yourself. So he reached out his hand and took it. So what are we trying to say about Christian education through this? Well, obviously, it was the establishment of a school, a new school, and the one thing that I get out of this story is that God was with them in the establishment of that school. Amen? He was guiding them and directing them. Did that mean they didn't have any troubles? Did that mean they didn't have any challenges? No. I mean, back then, you didn't have chainsaws. You didn't have backhoes. You didn't have bulldozers. So you, you lost your axe. You were in big trouble. They lost their axe, but God provided for them. So that tells me that God was in it and that he performed this supernatural miracle to show them he was in it and that he was, he was going to bless them in their new school. I want to read another story to you, um, and it starts in verse 8, because I want to show you another way that God is in Christian education. Now the king of Syria was making war against Israel, and he consulted with his servants, saying, my camp will be in such and such a place. And the man of God sent to the king of Israel, saying, beware that you do not pass this place, for the Assyrians are coming down there. Then the king of Israel sent someone to the place of which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him, and he was watching there not just once or twice. Therefore, the heart of the king of Syria was greatly troubled by this, and he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? So the king of Syria had this big problem. Every time he made a move, Israel was already ahead of him. So he said, I got this figured out. We have a rat. We have a mole. We have someone in here that is a traitor, and we need to deal with him. But look what one of his servants says. And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha the prophet who is in Israel 
tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. So, so let's back up for just a second here. We were just talking about how God was with the prophets in the establishment of their new school. But God was opposed to the king of Syria because he was opposed to God's people. So when you're working for God, he will work for you. If you decide that you want to work against him, don't be surprised if he works against you. And one of the servants said, um, no, go down to verse 13. So he said, go and see where he is that I may send him and get him. And I w- it was told him, sh- saying, surely he is in Dothan. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with the horses and chariots. And the servant said to him, alas, my master, what shall we do? So you have this army of Syria, which would be rather disconcerting. Imagine if you went out one morning and there was a whole SWAT team surrounding your house. That would be a little disconcerting, wouldn't it? But imagine this man coming out and seeing a whole army on his doorstep. So of course he was concerned. But Elisha answered and said, So he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Huh, isn't that interesting? You just had this small number of people, and yet you had this multitude outside, and yet Elisha said, those are, who are with us are more than with him, with them. So he's telling him, he's saying, you can't see right now, you don't understand, but the multitudes are on our side. You've heard that saying that you and God are a majority, Right? And so that's what we see here. It says, And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots and fire all around them. So we see that a man was blind. Not literally, of course, but he, didn't, he wasn't able to understand, wasn't able to see, right? And what did God do for him? He opened his eyes. You all understand this in an educational sense, because I believe this is what God is telling us through this. Uh, education is a way we open people, people's eyes. It's they don't see, and we help them to see. How many of you and you don't have to be a teacher to have done this, have known someone, you might have been talking with them, and you were trying to show them something. It could have been in a teaching situation, but it didn't have to be. And they said, oh, I see, I get it. You, you know what I'm talking about, right? They didn't see, they were blind, and now their eyes were open. And so that's what we, I see here as far as education goes, that Elisha prayed to God and God opened up this man's eyes. And that's what education does. That's one of the things that education can do for a person and that I believe as Christian educators, as leaders in in the Christian church and in the school, we are called to open our young people's eyes. And we are blessed to have that opportunity. So you can see what God continues to do for him in 18. So when the Syrians came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people, I pray, with 
blindness. And he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. So we see a contrast here. Isn't ironic that the people that he couldn't see were struck with blindness? Again, if you choose to oppose the Lord, you will end up blind. You won't be able to see. You won't be able to understand. But those who choose to follow God's directions, choose to follow his way, they'll be open, their eyes will be open and they'll be able to see. I want you to share with you our next passage from Matthew chapter 18. Let's ch- actually, let's turn to 19 first. Matthew chapter 19, verses 13 and 14. Then the little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. Isn't that interesting? Jesus loved the children. He wanted them to come to him. And what do the disciples disciples say? The disciples say, go away. We don't want you here. But Jesus said to them, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them for of such is the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus says, not only is it wrong to say they shouldn't come, but, he's, but these children are the essence of the kingdom of heaven. And he blesses them. He laid his hands on them, and they departed from there. So Jesus wanted us to understand that children are an essential component and part of the kingdom of heaven. The disciples didn't understand that. The disciples thought that the children weren't important to the kingdom of heaven, and Jesus had to re-educate them on that point. Look at chapter 18 of, of the book of Matthew, please. Chapter 18, beginning at verse 1. This is a problem that the disciples had. Maybe we still have it. But certainly the disciples had this problem as one of their major problems. They were always comparing themselves to each other and asking this question, who is the greatest? At the time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him. Again, this was radical. This was a radical departure from what people believed and thought that a child was the greatest And he said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are, what? Converted and become as a little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, the the kingdom of heaven is brought together with children. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. So Jesus was saying that children were central to the kingdom of heaven. Verse 6, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. I don't know if you've ever tried to to swim with a weight. I know um, in lifeguarding, we have had in our mini course a pre-lifeguarding course, and one of the things they have to do is they have to go down to the bottom of the pool, and they have to come up 
with a brick. Can you imagine if you had a millstone, any kind of big, heavy object, and it was tied to you, and you were trying to get off the bottom of a pool? It wouldn't be very pleasant. So I believe that Jesus was telling us here that it is so imperative that we not only don't forbid the children, but we do everything in our power, we do everything that we can do to see that children are led into the kingdom of God. We do everything that we can to open the doors and clear the way and make it possible for the children to come into the kingdom of God. I want to share a few statements from the spirit of prophecy. And first, uh, I want to show you this slide. This slide is from the Nazarene website, and it's not particular just to Adventist Christians, obviously, but it does talk about Christians at large, and it shows that that big pie there is all those who accepted Christ and it's between the age of 4 and 14. What does that tell us? Um, I can speak personally to this. Uh, when I was a young boy, about 13 years old, I decided to follow Christ. I decided to get baptized. It wasn't because of peer pressure, because when I entered the waters of baptism in Maynard's Pond, I was the only one in it. <laughs> there was no one else going to do it, so it certainly wasn't peer pressure and it was definitely, I remember, because I wanted to follow Jesus and go where he led. And so I can attest to that uh, data right there that shows that a great majority of Christians do uh, choose Jesus before um, their late teen years. And I think you'll see it's borne out by some of the statements here in the spirit of prophecy. It was enough, this is from the Desire of Ages, page 437. It, it was not enough for the disciples to be instructed as to the nature of his kingdom. What they needed was a change of what? A change of heart. Remember, what did Jesus say? You must be converted. That's a change of heart, isn't it? That's what happened, had to happen to the disciples. And how did he prove this point or demonstrate this point? Calling a little child to him, Jesus set him in the midst of them, then tenderly folding the little one in his arms, he said, except ye be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. And here's the major thing that I want you to recognize as a Christian school, what I believe we need to focus on. The simplicity, self-forgetfulness, and confiding love of a little child are the attributes that heaven values. They are the characteristics of real greatness. i read that again. The simplicity, self-forgetfulness, and confiding love of a little child are the attributes that heaven values. They are the characteristics of great, real greatness. So I want to suggest to you that as a church, as a school, as parents, as people that are supporting young people in Christian education, if anything we are doing does not contribute to these attributes, simplicity, self-forgetfulness, and confiding love, we really need to take a serious look at it, and maybe it needs to be changed. 
In the children who were brought into contact with him, Jesus saw the men and women who should be heirs of his grace and subjects of his kingdom, kingdom, and some of whom would become martyrs for his sake. He knew that these children would listen to him and accept him as their redeemer far more readily than would grown-up people. And that just kind of reasserts and reaffirms what we saw in that first slide, right? That it's young people who are more likely to come to Christ. Again, I'm not saying that God cannot save older people. I'm not saying that at all. Because after all, Jesus said that it is easier for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than what? For a camel to go through an eye, eye of an uh, eye. But yet, he said, the disciples were puzzled by this because they thought if you were rich, what did that mean? You were at the front of the line. You were bound to be saved. If you were rich, it was a sign of God's blessing. So they said, how can that be? And he said, with God, all things are possible. So I'm not stating here that people can't be saved when they're older at all. But you know this to be true, uh, that something that is young is easier, more easily trained, correct? If we went out here to one of these vineyards, and you had an adult vine, and I told you your task is to take that adult vine and train it to grow straight up, how easy would, be that, jo- how easy would that job be? <laughs> it would be almost impossible, Right? But if I took a young vine, very new, and I told you to shape that vine straight up, it would be a much more doable task, wouldn't it? So I think this statement really just affirms that. Many of whom were worldly wise and hard-hearted. In his teaching, he came down to their level. He, the majesty of heaven, did not disdain to answer their questions and simplify his important lessons to meet their childish understanding. Another important thing that we need to remember about education, just like it said that simplicity was one of those important attributes, simplicity is so important in teaching. We need to simplify to make our lessons understandable. He planted in their minds the seeds of truth in which after years would spring up and bear fruit unto eternal life. Isn't that great news? That God has implanted in the young people's minds seeds that will bear fruit unto eternal life. Last slide for today. It is true that children are the most susceptible to the teaching of the gospel. That's just what we've been saying, right? Their hearts are open to divine influences and, to strong, and strong to retain the lessons received. The little children may be Christians having an experience in accordance with their years. They need to be educated in spiritual things and parents should give them every advantage that they may form characters after the similitude of the character of Christ. Now, when you read much of Ellen White's writing, she's going to direct it at the parents. And I just want to make one mention of this. And that is when she was writing in the 1800s and the early 1900s, uh, in the year 1800, the population of the United States was 96% rural, 4% urban. 
of that rural population, the overwhelming pop portion of that population was family farms. So what did that mean? That meant what we read in Deuteronomy chapter 6, it was a reality in many of these homes. They woke up together. They ate together. They worked together. They played together. They did everything together. So in our country at this time, when she was writing, it's almost naturally going to go to the parents. Now, does that mean because it's not like that today, the parents don't have a responsibility? Of course not. But now that circle has been enlarged. That circle has been enlarged, include the church and the school. And so when she's giving many of these directives, many of these thoughts and uh, admonitions on education about how to guide and direct the children, she is giving them to parents, but she's also giving them to our schools and our church. So I hope that you can see from what we've talked about here that we have a great opportunity that God has given us to shape and mold and lead our children into the kingdom of heaven. And my prayer is that we as a church and we as a school and we as a parents will continue to evaluate what we are doing in education and choose God's way to lead them into that kingdom.